On this extra episode of the Northeast Newscast, we are speaking with David Dawson, renowned British archaeologist and director of the Wiltshire Museum in England. Dawson will be giving a fascinating presentation Friday, August 16th at Union Station in conjunction with the current Stonehenge exhibition. In today's podcast, Dawson explains the mysteries behind Stonehenge, including a look at the lives of the people who fashioned Stonehenge, a preview of what visitors can expect at the exhibit, and a look into what he will be offering in his lecture. David Dawson, I'm director of the Wiltshire Museum in Devizes. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being here today, and thank you for spending your time with us this morning. It's a real pleasure. Yes, wonderful. Thank you so much. So, we're going to talk a little bit about the Stonehenge exhibit, um, and then your lecture that you are giving tomorrow, correct? Correct. Wonderful. So, let's talk a little bit about you, your biography, your history, and, you know, how you came to uh, Kansas City. (laughs) It's probably a long story, I'm sure. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I'm David Dawson. I'm, I'm now run a small museum that's halfway between Stonehenge itself and Avebury, which is the other site, the sort of the Neolithic stone circle that people may have heard of. It's a small town, devises about 12,000 people, but we, the museum itself has a national reputation, nationally important collection. I'm an archaeologist, so I started off at the age of 13. I was allowed to go on an archaeological excavation for one day in case I misbehaved. I was still there three weeks later, so, and that was it, so I got the bug. Then I went to university, studied archaeology. We went on a field trip with our professors, and we went to what we call Wessex, and we went to Avebury, the museum I now run, and Stonehenge, and a range of other sites. And I don't know if you remember the Remington advert, but uh, the guy who liked the, the product so much, he bought the company. I like the museum so much. I decided that was the museum I wanted to end up running. So I then did archaeology, came out, started working in museums, sort of ended, worked in a few places, and then was able to come and become director of the Watch Museum. It's about 10 years, years or so ago. Um, so tell us a little bit about the exhibit. This is the first time it's been in North America, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. It's a real coup for Union Station. It's an amazing exhibition. So uh, what it does is it tells the story of Stonehenge, and that's the exhibition does that in a way that you can't actually do in England. You can't get that same breadth of of the story of Stonehenge and the area around in the same way in England. So it really is a fantastic opportunity. Why is that? That's because people visit the monument itself and get sort of part of the story. And then to get the rest, they visit Salisbury Museum. That focuses on the time when Stonehenge was being constructed. And then my museum, which has got fantastic collections of the time when Stonehenge was in use. Because... You know, the, the detail here is that Stonehenge was being used for over one and a half thousand years. And whereas, you know, if you think about it just being built, everyone thinks of that as very, very short time scale. And it's not. One and a half thousand years. From today, that takes us back to the time of the Romans. So I did have the pleasure of attending and going through the exhibit, and I thought it was fantastic and very informative. So I want to talk a little bit about maybe what some things people can expect from the exhibit, maybe who don't know anything about Stonehenge or, or kind of have a lot of questions surrounding it. So tell us a little bit about what visitors might expect. Well, I think one of the things it gets across very well is the, the way that Stonehenge was built, which of course is the big question. It also is very clear on Stonehenge being part, just the, what people think of Stonehenge, you know, all the stones fl- 
big uprights, flat ones on top, is just a small part of a huge ceremonial landscape. And it's not just one site. There are hundreds within two, three, four miles of the monument itself. So it's that breadth of landscape that I think is absolutely amazing. But everyone wants to know about the stones, don't they? <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's really interesting. The, and if you look at the way that the monument's built... Is, is probably the best way to come at it, which is that it starts off about 3,000 BC, so that's 5,000 years ago, as a circular bank and ditch, and then with stones dotted around the inside. There are 90 of them. Now, the stones are about the size of people, so they're about six foot tall out of the ground. So there's another three foot or so below the ground, and they weigh about three tonnes. Now, the amazing things about those stones is that they're a very hard volcanic rock, and they come from Wales which is about 120 miles. So you're bringing 90 stones, 3 tonnes, 120 miles. Now, if you are to do that today, you know, it's quite an achievement. But then, of course, as far as we know, they had no wheels. They wouldn't have been able to put one on a cart, so they would have been dragged or put on a boat. And we really don't know quite how that was done. But my guess is... Oh, the other way it could have been done is... If they're only three tons, you could actually build something a bit like a stretcher and carry them. But even so, 120 miles is going to take you a fair while. You know, and no matter how, how you do it, you're not going to make more than three or four miles in a day. You've got to have a decent trackway or road to take them across. Or if you do get them on a boat, you've then got to get them around the coast and waves and storms and so on. It's a huge undertaking. You know, honestly, that was one of the things that I found most surprising about the exhibit was learning that the stones were so far away originally. I honestly did not know that information. So then that brought up so many other questions that were answered in going through the exhibit, which is how was this done? Who were the people that did this? What was their life like? Just learning that information that they did have to take these stones from so far. I thought that was just very interesting. So I'm glad that information was in there. Well, one of the things that is really interesting as well is that that time Stonehenge became then a cemetery, cremation cemetery. And scientific tests these days, you can look at people's teeth. The water you drink has minerals in from the, the underlying geology. You know, as, as the water comes through the, the ground, it picks up trace minerals. By looking at people's teeth, you can work out where they grew up. And so we know that a number of the people who were buried at Stonehenge actually came from Wales. They came from the West. And the obvious thing then you start to say is, well, if the stones came from the West, is there a link here? And the obvious option is that perhaps the stones came from an ancestral homeland. So I don't know if you're familiar with the mounds, the Mississippi mounds in the Mississippi Valley. There are mounds there where people brought baskets of soil from their hunting grounds to an ancestral homeland. So we know from other examples, you know, that is the sort of thing people do. It's about cementing that relationship between where you are and where your ancestors came from. Okay. And to me, that's a really powerful explanation for why it's worth bringing those yeah. stones all the way from Wales. Yes, I feel like the exhibit did a great job of just answering the questions from a visitor perspective. The main questions that I feel people have, how was this built? Why was this built? Who were the people that did this? And I feel like you really get a good idea of the whole picture 
the whole history going through the exhibit. So I feel like it was it's very informative and very well done. I do want to talk a little bit about I brought my daughter, my five year old. So <laughs> I think right. yes. So I think she really loved it. And for anyone listening who might have children and are wondering if this is kid friendly, hundred percent is very kid friendly. You do have interactive exhibits for the little ones. They have little videos they can watch, blocks, coloring pages. Um, so tell us a little bit about how the exhibit was set up and why it was set up the way that it was. Well, it was done by um, a company in Austria who worked with one of the leading academics, Mike Parker Pearson, and he's done all sorts of research on Stonehenge and the landscape over the last 20 or so years. And the exhibition was a chance to tell that new story that's come from all that underlying research and to present that to an audience, not just at the monument itself and the immediate area, but actually to much wider wider audience and so as you say the idea very much was to take a a fresh look and to try and answer the questions that everybody has about Stonehenge why was it built what was it for and who did it you're exactly right we've not done the why it was for what it was built for (laughs) <laughs> so you are going to be giving a lecture tomorrow, Friday, August 16th um, at Union Station. Uh, what time is that? 10 o'clock. 10 o'clock. Okay. And then there's a chance to go through and see the exhibition. Wonderful. So tell us a little bit, as much as you can, because I don't want to give away your whole lecture, <laughs> um, but tell us maybe a brief preview or what um, visitors can expect if they attend your lecture. Well, I'll be talking about the story of Stonehenge. So I'll be taking people through some of the things I've been talking about uh, at the moment about the Blue Stones about the next phase of the monument, which is when the Sarsons, Sarsons Circle is built at 2,500 BC, and then a little bit about the people who we know use the monument. As I say, it was in use for 1,500 years. So 3,000 BC, circular bank and ditch, blue stones from Wales, 2,500 BC, that's when the Sarsen stones are put up. That's the bit that everyone thinks of when they see the photos as being Stonehenge. And then the people who were using it for the next thousand years and that's the bit that's in my museum and is featured in we've some of the objects we've loaned to the exhibition what would you say are some of the common misconceptions that you hear uh, surrounding stonehenge the ones i love are the proposed by particularly by uh, retired engineers who work for prestigious universities it's always engineers i hope there's none none of those listening (laughs) who come up with all the most bonkers ideas because there are theories about stonehenge every day of the week we will never know what it was really for because this is prehistory there's no written records and all we've got left is the monument itself and the objects that the people left behind and the the traces of the people and we need to take those clues and try and assemble them and use that to try and tell a story that's what the exhibition does very well I think there's yeah I think I think what Stonehenge is for is probably fairly straightforward but it will always be a mystery Um, I want to talk a little bit about the people because you did focus in the exhibit on the people who created Stonehenge, which a lot of people don't know or haven't heard that part of the story. Um, So tell us a little bit about that. The people themselves were the first farmers. So these are people who came to Britain and brought farming with them. So that's the growing of crops and animals. And at the time, Britain was cut off from the continent. There was 20 miles of sea, so they had to be able to get their seeds and animals so cows sheep pigs onto boats and get them across the English Channel so it tells you something about their sophistication they were not stupid and then these people that was about 4000 BC and within a couple of hundred years they were building monuments across England across Britain and in what is now the Stonehenge landscape so 
I talked earlier about Stonehenge itself being just a small part of a much wider ceremonial landscape. So one of the things they, they did was to build what we call the cursus. Now that's a, it's a bank and ditch that makes a straight line across the landscape and it's uh, three kilometres long. So that's what, over two miles long, 12 foot deep, 12 foot high bank, huge civil engineering project. That will have taken more effort than building the monument itself. And it's aligned east-west, and there's a burial mound at the very eastern end. And what I always wonder is whether that lines up with the equinox, that's when day and night are equal, and you would have the sun rising at the east. But perhaps it's a day's journey. You start at the west, you've come from Wales, that's where your ancestors come from, and at dawn the sun is rising over the burial mound, and you walk towards the burial mound and process and have ceremonies along the way, perhaps prayers for the the dead or whatever it is they're doing. But huge civil engineering project. We're talking something like over 100,000 person hours to make that. And we've no real idea what it's for. And then a few hundred years later, they are building more burial mounds in the in the area. Uh, there's about 20 altogether. The, uh, what seems to be happening is that the people that are buried there are a single generation and probably a single family. And so again, maybe what the, this is about is the ancestors are being buried, the founding generation or the most important people, and then the, the people are going back to honour the ancestors. So that seems to be the landscape into which then Stonehenge, that first phase of Stonehenge is then constructed. And they're doing that within you know, a relatively short time of coming, coming to the country. Now, one of the things that I really liked, one of the artifacts that was there, it, was, um, it looked like a dagger and it had the gold gold uh, on it. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I, I certainly I, can. <laughs> yes, it was so interesting because I, I realized that there were so many small little gold. I don't remember what they were called, but you can explain that for yeah, us. Yeah. But I just want to kind of know the history of that and, you know, kind of how that ties into That's the exhibit. That's the objects lent from my museum. So, okay. Yeah. This dates to about 2000 BC. In terms of the monument itself, blue stones, the sarsen stones have gone up. So that stage of the monument is in use for a thousand years. The dagger was buried with a chap we call the Bush Barrow Chieftain, who died about 2000 BC. And he was buried in an, under a burial mound. So placed in its grave, and then they built a mound over the top of him. And the mound he's in, we don't know for sure how many people are buried with him, but there's probably about uh, 40 people buried in the same mound. We think there's one person buried at 2400 BC, and we know there's somebody buried at 1600 BC, because they're buried in, they're cremated and put in a particular type of pot. So that single burial mound is in use for 800 years. So that tells you that's a family burial vault. That must be a noble family. So we come to back to him. He's buried with, that's Britain's richest Bronze Age burial, and he's buried with a gold lozenge on his chest. Quite thin sheet gold, but it's about six inches across, decorated with incised lines that are accurately laid out to a tolerance of less than half a millimetre. So you know, real precision engineering. That means they knew about mathematics because of the precision of measurement and about geometry because of the way it's laid out. Then his dagger. The blade is made of bronze and we don't know for sure where it was made. It may be from Brittany, it may be from, the, so it may be from France or it may be from the southwest of England. And the handle is decorated with these tiny little gold studs. They're about the same thickness as a human hair, 
and less than a millimetre long. Really, you can only see them under a microscope, can't you? They're not just sort of scattered on the dagger handle. What they did was they took a sharp bronze point and made a hole through into the wood. There's a thin layer of pine gum as an adhesive. And they took one of these studs and put it in place. Then another hole, another stud next to it, and built up a pattern of zigzag lines. The size of these studs means that they were they're absolutely tiny. You couldn't, you know, I certainly couldn't put them in place. And they didn't have magnifying glasses or anything like that in those days. So the suggestion is that was assembled by children, kids aged between, say, 8 and 14. Because at that age you got great manual dexterity, you'd be good with your fingers, great eyesight. If the children had done that, it would have destroyed their eyesight because they'd been focusing so closely on that, they would have destroyed their eyesight and they wouldn't have been able to focus on anything more than three feet away in their adult lives. There were something like 140,000 of those gold studs on the dagger handle and if you can put one in place a minute, that's nine months worth of work. The way they made the studs is even more amazing, which is they drew out square section gold wire, chopped it into lengths, folded it in half, twisted it, then rolled it between two bits of wood and then tapped on the end to flatten it to make it into the head of the stud. And remembering, we're ending up with something that's the same thickness as a human hair. So that's unbelievable. So my guess is five years to make that dagger handle. It's beautiful. Yeah. It was pro- it was one of my favourites yeah. of the exhibit. We call it a dagger, but we don't probably isn't actually a weapon okay. because the, the bronze blade, they were really keen on daggers. They're really keen on dagger handles as well. But a lot of those daggers, only one edge of the blade, one side of the blade has been sharpened. Now, if you're going to try and kill someone, you want both edges sharp. Also, there's no evidence of them being used in battle. You know, there's no, when you bash the two daggers together, you get a, a nick on the blade. And also, there's very, there's very little evidence of violent death in the Bronze Age. You'd expect people, you know, find people hacked to bits and traces on, you know, sort of slots on the inside of the ribs where the dagger's gone in and been <laughs> twisted and all the rest of it. Sorry to be gross. And there's very little evidence of that. I suspect it's actually around slitting the throat of an animal that you can then have for a feast it's about who controls the feast so it's about power and authority not about it's not a weapon because you can imagine if you spent five years making this amazing dagger you wouldn't want to get it destroyed in battle much more so big ceremony most important time of the year which is probably the midwinter solstice at today's christmas you have perhaps a pig you get men sort of people holding it and then i'm the big chief I slit the throat of the pig, perhaps keep the blood to make into uh, what we call black pudding, because you make that into a delicacy. And then the pig is then roasted, and then that feeds the whole community. But I have killed the animal. I'm the boss. It's all about power and authority. You also talked about the teeth and the, I think it was the isotope, correct? That's right. Okay. My question is what current technology has helped you learn a little bit more about Stonehenge and kind of what all you have brought in to kind of put the pieces together and build the story that you've had? Where do I start? (laughs) The amount of scientific stuff in there is absolutely amazing. Stonehenge is such a poster boy or poster girl for prehistory that it's a a real plaything for academics and scientists. The one I find that's most interesting is DNA analysis. Now, I'm obsessed by this time when metal first comes to Britain, what we call the Bronze Age. I talked a little about the Neolithic population, the the first farmers, but what's clear is looking at the DNA of these Bronze Age people, that's the people around the time when the the gold-studded dagger was around, it looks as though this group of people, their DNA relates to a population that moved from the other side of the Black Sea. Now, they had a very distinct, what we call culture, which means that they buried their dead in a distinctive way. What they would do is they'd be buried in a crouched position, curled up, 
the, the reason for that I, I like best, many other possibilities, the one I like best is it's uh, in a fetal position ready to be reborn into a new life. And then they're buried with things that show how important they are in life. So they have a pot, a particular type of pot called a beaker, and that's what, about six inches, they're about six inches tall, decorated, and you can trace the decoration and the shapes broadly the same all the way through Europe. And then they have a dagger and then often archer equipment. So they have arrowheads and what's called an archer's bracer. And that's a piece of stone that was on the inside of the wrist, uh, probably with leather bindings. And that's to stop the bowstring hitting the inside of the wrist because the inside of your arm is very delicate and it hurts. <laughs> I can tell you because I've done it. Uh, but these, the stones, are, sometimes they're, they're exotic and also they're very carefully made. They're flattened, they've had holes drilled in them, carefully shaped. We've got one that's made of a stone called jadeite, and that's been brought from Spain. So that's a couple of thousand miles. So these things are prestigious. And this, the, the people buried in this way, their DNA relates to the other side of the, the, the Black Sea. And that existing Neolithic population, very little of their DNA has found its way into the modern British population. So these people seem to be incomers. Now, Ten years ago, I was telling people that the Beaker, the Beaker people, which is you know, what we call them, were not incomers, and that it was a fashion. So the example I was using is, was iPads. Everyone's got an iPad, but that doesn't mean uh, we've been taken over by Californians wearing sandals, except we now th- think that actually that's exactly what happened, that it's a group of people moving steadily across Europe and then taking over control. The big debate at the moment is whether everyone is, whether the existing people are all killed off or died, perhaps illness or disease, or maybe they're all killed, or whether they carried on. But it was only this new population that their DNA has gone through in today's, into today's British population. So there's something going on there. I think the exhibit is wonderful, and I'm excited for people to see it, and I'm definitely excited for people to hear your lecture tomorrow and get a little bit more information about Stonehenge. Is there anything you want to add that you feel is important that we did not discuss today? The sarsen stones, it has to be the big thing. The sarsen stones, which those are the ones that everyone sees. When you see a photo of Stonehenge, you know it's instantly recognisable across the world. The stones that that's made of, those are um, those come from further north in Wiltshire, about 26 miles away, and the biggest of those weighs 40 tonnes. But each of those stones is individually shaped, and that's about 50 years' worth of work, major construction project. And one of the things that really underlines is that whoever's idea that was was never going to live long enough to see it finished. So that idea, that plan, had to be transmitted through at least to probably as many as five generations, which just tells you something about the commitment being made to that effort. You know, it wasn't just one person's idea who told everyone what to do. That idea was transmitted through successive generations. There's a video that is in the exhibit. And is that kind of cater to the idea of where the one of the people said, this is, this is what we have to do, this is our goal, this is what I'm working towards? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, there's a young lady who gives, from the time, it's this very imaginative drama, and she gives her view of how the monument is being constructed. And she gives an idea of how much effort has gone into it. Because to move those stones 26 miles, it's going to take a year to shape each one, then a month to physically move them, another month to put them upright, and you've got to have a team of, say, 300 men 
doing the hard work and then they've got to be fed clothed housed so the the effort is absolutely immense and at the time of course people were you couldn't go to the supermarket and buy your food you still had to be growing crops looking after the animals so the whole of society from the whole of that area had to be focused around making this thing happen you know it's just like napoleon said you know the army marches on its stomach building the stonehenge must have been exactly the same that video really imaginative gets across all the effort that goes into it and how it relies on a leader to say this is what we're doing is there a reason why you made it a female or whoever's idea that was well it's too easy to say men did the dragging because they're physically stronger but which may well be the case but it's not just men involved in it because it's the whole community. And that was why it was a woman, because there are so many things that are needed to make that work. And it's and the physical jobs, you know, not just the hauling the stones, you have to make the ropes, you have to cut down the trees, you have to do a whole series of jobs that everyone in the community would be involved in. And that's why a woman was chosen, because it's very easy to think men move, that's easy, they're the construction workers. And one said. more thing, which is a little bit of gold that's about the size of your thumbnail. You may have missed it. It's with the burial of a really important woman uh, who was a leader, and she's buried with objects that show how important she is, including gorgeous little amber discs encased in gold. And those are earrings. The amber comes from the Baltic, which is Denmark or Estonia, which is over 2,500 miles. So it's been brought that far. This little bit of gold is wrapped over a piece of bone, and the bone has a little squiggle on because it's the joint between two bones of a skull. Now, when we had the specialists looking at it, I tried to blackmail them to try and tell me what animal it came from. And all they would say, it's a medium-sized mammal. What they mean by that is, because the shape, it can either be sheep, goat, or human. Now, they were doing an operation called trepanning, which means taking a sharp stone, a sharp piece of flint, and sawing a hole in the skull, and lifting out the disc. We know that from other examples. And I wonder if the disc from the skull wrapped in gold is a bit of her skull or a warrior killed in battle her grandmother or a bit of sunday dinner <laughs> i'm waiting for a dna test where you can just at the moment we'd have to drill into it to get a, a sample of the bone it's too precious to do that i'm waiting for a, one day that somebody will invent a test we can just zap it with a laser and then we'll know what what it's from now, there was one where it had the skull. Is that where it was? No, no, that's no. that's a different one. That's one of these beaker burials. So that's okay. a skull with long bones and one of these wonderful beakers. And that chap, he's called the Roundway Warrior. He has uh, one of these wrist guards. And that, that comes from Spain. And the dagger he has, uh, the metal comes from Austria. Okay. So completely different sides of Europe. I also saw the pendant that was look like the horns yeah that yes. that was hers the the horns must be cattle that must represent the number of cattle she was in control of because in most societies the way you measure wealth is by the number of cattle you control so you've got a, a an ornament a necklace with cattle horns that's showing you're in charge of lots of cattle you're the boss well i honestly might need to go through it one more time <laughs> after hearing your you talk about it a little bit more but thank you so much for your time thank you for your information is there anything else you want to add for us today no just to say how much of a pleasure it's been to come and talk to you and that was David Dawson, British archaeologist and director of the Wiltshire Museum in England. Dawson will be giving a full one-hour presentation at Union Station Friday, August 16th, in conjunction with the Stonehenge exhibit, to discuss more on the mysteries of Stonehenge. For more information and to purchase tickets, visit unionstation.org. Thank you for listening to this extra episode of the Northeast Newscast. I'm Elizabeth Orozco.